and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our year-end edition of Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories. I'm Christopher Tidmore in our historic studios in New Orleans' Magazine Street, and joining us from Maine is our host, Mr. Curtis Robinson. And Curtis, today, as we do this, our end of the year, you know, sort of what 1972 taught us, and Fear and Loathing in the Campaign Trail 72, it is kind of a signature date here on the 29th of December, because that was the day that Hale Boggs was declared dead from being lost over Alaska. And everyone thought he was going to be the next Speaker of the House. And here we are on the 29th of December looking for parallels 50 years ago. And right now, if Kevin McCarthy manages to not get 218 in the next couple of weeks of the Republican caucus, everyone's saying the next Speaker of the House will be the guy who succeeded Hale Boggs years later. And that's Steve Scalise in the same district, in the same place from the city of New Orleans. Yeah, Christopher, I love it when you begin by just going right into the political weeds. Uh, you know, the thing that gets me about Scalise, other than than the fact that, that he was shot, isn't he currently whip? He's whip. So, so, so you know, you know it, I, I can't help but notice, wasn't that Frank Underwood's title at the beginning of uh, House of Cards? That's what he was. He, he was whip? He was, he was the Democratic majority whip. Now, obviously, yes, 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 yes. Scalise was the is the Republican minority whip. So everybody advances up one office. He would normally become the majority leader, become when the Republicans come in. But yeah, it's it is kind of like uh, and that, and that is the path Frank Underwood took. So are we going? You know, and and we saw how it ended with him. I mean, he's got Scalise has to be careful. He seems to be a great guy. You know. That that's an interesting parallel, of course. You know, Hell Boggs uh, was in line. To probably be the first speaker from Louisiana. I don't know that Louisiana has ever had a speaker in as, the House. As far as I know, we didn't. We came awfully close, obviously, with Bob Livingston. He had been elected into the post by the caucus, and he was going to assume the speakership in the next Congress. And then there was a little thing called the Clinton impeachment. And I believe it was the uh, congresswoman from Georgia, um, Cynthia, um, whose name is escaping me, who yelled out on the floor of the House when he uh, called on Clinton to resign. You know, Mr. President resigned. She said, you resign. And Livingston responds to the entire House. So therefore, I shall resign. <laughs> it was, and there was silence. Well, there you have it. You don't, uh, so yes or no, uh, Louisiana uh, uh, speaker curse. So I mean that came close, and so twice we've come we've come really close, and uh, and bad things happen, and I, I, I yeah, it's you know you never know what Scalise already gets shot. I mean it's like there's that's not true. Much, there's that's not true. Much. He could be, it could be that Scalise is pre-disastered. Yeah, uh, he was. You he, know, and and if they take up potential domestic terrorism threats against politicians, he would be. He would be pretty. I mean, wasn't he literally playing softball when he got shot? He was. So he was on the congressional softball team. And what's interesting about this, and it, it kind of says Hale Boggs had a lot of friends on the other side of the aisle. In fact, one of Hale Boggs's best friends was a guy by the name of Jerry Ford. So let's just really play this whole circle all the way. Hale Boggs had always said, hey, "Jerry, you're going to be president one day." And Jerry said, "All I want to be is speaker." So that was that was going on. That the part is this. Hale Boggs was someone who. Everyone said was going to be the first Southern Speaker of the House since Sam Rayburn. And it looked like it was going to happen. It was coming in. You had McCormick there. And honestly, his death on a fundraising trip with Democratic Congressman Mark Beglich cleared the way for a Massachusetts young congressman, protege of John McCormick, the Speaker, to move up, named Tip O'Neill. Wow. 
Wow. History in the making and uh, yeah. avoid small planes, right? Avoid small planes and Alaskan wilderness. Um, I've done that, and it's been pretty scary when I've flown over there. But uh, the but, point- but how else are you going to move around Alaska? It's too big for roads. <laughs> well, it, there are, and literally there are no roads. You cannot. Well, there you go. So there it is. It's uh, uh, until they come up with the drones that will take uh, the flying taxis to take us around. I guess we'll have to live with the small planes. Yeah, but, then, uh, but I thought it was kind of interesting that on the 29th of December, we had this coming on. And it's kind of that connection because there have been this has been a year as we've gone through fear and loathing on the campaign trail 72 where the parallels from George Wallace to Trump to everything that's been going on have been so permeant that to end the year this way is kind of an appropriate full circle. Well, yeah, you get the feel. It's kind of eerie. You don't, you know, does history repeat itself or who was it that said no, but it rhymes. It rhymes. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind I, you, you kind of have that feeling and, uh, you know, and everything, I've got to say at the end of the year, everything's been a hunter story. You know, we, um, the, the notable sports deaths of the year will of course be include Franco Harris, the famous stealer and the, the person who caught the ball on what's called the immaculate reception. <laughs> That's great. Play. But there, there's, and it reminded me immediately, of course, of, of a hunter story as, as uh, so many things do, but, um, it was, um, the story is, I'm going to say it's early 70. It wasn't 72. It was 1973. I'm pretty sure it was 73. And the the story was that Hunter was in San Francisco at Jan Winter's house. And he met who, who would become, a, I think, an underappreciated figure in the Gonzo world, uh, uh, John Walsh, who would uh, be at ESPN. But John Walsh was coming to be editor, I think, managing editor of Rolling Stone, at the time, and he and Hunter met there to bond over football, and they immediately set up this this sort of uh, de facto fantasy league where Hunter got the left side of the TV screen, uh, the light-colored jerseys, I think the even numbers, and the Caucasian players. Whereas Mr. Walsh got the, it was a different time. Yeah, I mean, Mr. you, could, you, could, you the, couldn't uh, do that today. <laughs> the dark jerseys, yeah. uh, the the odd numbers, and, and the non-Caucasians. And it came to pass, whatever the rules were, the scoring was, that the deciding factor was a touchdown. And I've also heard this story told that it was actually just a bet on the next player to score, uh, but but it came to pass that that score was by Franco Harris. Really? Uh, Franco Harris uh, is considered, I think he's the first African-American to be a most valuable player of a Super Bowl. But he's also the first Italian-American to be MVP in a Super Bowl. So Hunter argued that since Franco Harris was Italian, uh, he would go uh, with the Caucasian group, and you can imagine this was a hideous thing. And then into the room and into this story walked none other than George Plimpton. Really? The, fa- the famous author of Paper Lion, who Walsh and Hunter immediately agreed that he was the only person on the planet both of them would agree on to officiate <laughs> and make a decision. Well, it turned out that that Mr. Plimpton who I would meet years and years later, of course, uh, he went on some sort of, and people who, who remember it or who were there, 
He apparently went on some sort of massive rant about the stupidity of the whole thing, recessive genes, and then came down, I think, citing perhaps federal regulations from something in the Civil War era, God help us. Good Lord, that sounds that like Clinton. <laughs> that, that, that Italian, A, is a nationality, not a race, and B, Franco Harris was black for purposes of this and I'm sure it was African-American at the time, but he was definitely not Caucasian for purposes of this wager. And at that point, the narratives deviate. Uh, some people say Hunter stole the car. Other people say that Jan Winter loaned him the car. But anyway, Hunter left. Not only did he leave in, in a bit of, uh, by almost any telling, a stream of profanities, but he liberated a, a bottle of, wild turkey and he would he would say i've missed a key part of this story because the wager was for a bottle of wild turkey which was hunter's drink of choice at that time so he not only left he took the wild turkey with him and i'm not really sure walsh must have gotten over it because of course he went on to a career at espn and and walsh was the cornerstone of hunter's last writing column uh, the hey rube columns were were at ESPN. Uh, I think the Hey Rube columns are probably the most underappreciated of Hunter's work, particularly if, I mean, yeah, sometimes I think we should just go through and get the predictions from that, where he, he was predicting, a, you know, forever war against terrorism, and that was before 9-11. It's, it's some, of, some of his best writing. Is, see, I, I, I agree that the book can be uneven, only because parts of it are brilliant and parts of it are just really good. <laughs> you know, it kind of, well, it kind of reminds you of someone asked Conrad after he wrote A Heart of Darkness. They said, well, it's been 10 years and you've not written anything better than that yet. And he's like, well, yeah, but neither has anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I love that. I love that. You know, that's, that's the quote of quotes. Yeah, I have it. I wish that were a Hemingway quote. It would have been a great Hemingway quote. He just, but anyway, that's Kevin, the but he, too, many, too many quotes are attributed to Hemingway. That It's like Churchill. You know, Hemingway said, no, he didn't actually say this. Just everybody thinks Hemingway said this. The actual quotes are, are wonderful, but they're not quite as... Uh, uh, well, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a meme going um, uh, viral now uh, uh, that's a derivative of what I think is a Churchill quote, and you would probably know this immediately, being a Churchill scholar, is that, and I forget the republic, the Republican from New York who's called it one lie after another, his resume. Oh, was George wrong. Soros, uh, George uh, Santos, George Santos. Well, George Soros would be a different thing, yeah. but George Santos. Yeah. Uh, I saw coming across it was like. An empty, an empty cab pulled up, and, and Representative Alex Santos got out. Yeah. But I can't remember the actual quote. There's a quote that that's a that's a derivative of a Churchill quote. Yeah, right? it, it has to do. It has to do. Um, I, it, it, I think it has to do with Clement Attlee. Um, uh, and 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 the question is whether he actually said it. There, there are two Clement Adelaides. One was, you know, uh, an empty cab came by, and um, and you know, Clement Attlee got out. Um, the, the other one was, a, 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 you know, a, a sheep in sheep's clothing. Um, but I, I love, I love a sheep in sheep's clothing. Yeah. The, uh, that, that, I, I love that. The funny thing uh, is, but, but you, you question both of those. I question both of those because, um, the, the, not that 
Churchill well, you're no could, fun anymore. Yeah, Churchill could, it had assorbit quotes about people. I mean, the one about Nancy Astor is undoubtedly very true. Uh, you know, um, but interestingly, he was actually very complimentary all the time of Clement Attlee, not of the Labor Party, but of Clement Attlee personally. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that he personally said these things. He would make comments about Attlee. Um, he says, uh, uh, you know, like the other. There was a third one that. Um, that he may have said, but we're not really sure because it's not in the record. But it said, you know, humble man who has mu- uh, of whom there is much to be humble about. But uh, you know, it's it, it it he there isn't there isn't a lot of evidence that he actually said that about Adley. What he would say well, about some of the other people was was incredible. But you know, well, I am I am as as usual impressed by your your grasp of the past. But how about your grasp of the future? Do you feel like? Uh, you want to make some predictions? Here? What, what 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 do you think are the big big uh, stories? The big political stories? The the Hunter S stories of twenty twenty three? All right. So we we're gonna, so the way we're looking at this in this entire year is how what can we learn from fear and loathing on the campaign trail seventy two? How does it inform our politics going forward? And, you know, um, and, and some people wear those little bracelets, you know, uh, 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 WWJD, what would Jesus do? You know, uh, uh, Curtis and I wanted to get a WWHD, uh, you know, what would Hunter do? And, um, you know, what would Hunter think about what's going on? And I, I got to tell you that what's interesting about 72 is the counter reaction that happened within a year of the election. Now, my question is. In a strange sort of way, um, a an incumbent who was considered endangered a year before um, ended up winning somewhat comfortably. Uh, didn't have incredible coattails, but for the most part, won. And you can think about you know Biden's turnaround in fame. Does this mean that we're about to see something bad in Biden, or we're about to see a civil war in the GOP, or you know, a different change? Um, I, I, and the ultimate one, it was a Southern governor from Georgia. We are about to see a Southern governor from Florida for the Republicans, you know, as, as the as the anti-incumbent. All of that comes in. I actually think the most interesting conversation from a Hunter standpoint, a Hunter reader standpoint is um, we're the I'm, I'm a big supporter of uh, helping the Ukrainians. I've been to Ukraine. I've I've seen how hard these people are fighting. But it's interesting to see the counter reaction about the war that's starting to happen on the right, you know, this is this is a, to paraphrase another, you know, uh, a rival of Winston Churchill. This is a uh, a war in a faraway place of which we know very little. Um, the the question is, are we starting to see a Vietnam kind of post reaction? Are we going to kind of see having supported this war? Are they going to walk away? What is going to happen? Some have said that that was Afghanistan was was the resemblance to Vietnam. In this situation, maybe it's Ukraine. I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll find out if America's going to make a U-turn on that. Uh, that That's what I think there's a danger of that happening. I'm not predicting it. But I am saying that we're going to start seeing um, uh, I, I, here's what I think is happening. Inflation in 1972 was about 8%, just like it is today. We were in, about we were in good economic times, but about to enter a recession. And the 1970s, we were finding a situation where oil uh, prices were starting to rise on an aggregate 
because of world things. So the question is, are we predicting stagflation coming back, which was which started to come in in the second term of Nixon, a Ford, and then manifested ultimately in the term of um, Carter. Obviously, the Fed is doing a lot more and trying to keep interest rates, you know, raising interest rates and fighting this. But maybe the prediction is the economic conditions of what's going on very seriously resemble 1973 and on. Yeah, and and when you look at things politically, it's unsettling in a way that that um, the the cons- the most conservative government probably in at least my lifetime. Um, of of Israel, yeah. uh, Netanyahu is is forming a government this very week, and he's doing so. I I think he's actually under criminal indictment. He is, and I don't know what you know. Okay, make of that what you will going forward. Uh, he was under criminal indictment, and the and the voters clearly elected him anyway, which is is interesting. And some of them took that. Uh, the, I don't know enough about his situation to know what what's going on here, but clearly, as things are are shaping up now, anyone that thought Biden might not run, and I I think I was one of the ones who thought he might not, when he when when he moved the um, the early primary to South Carolina, I think that was uh, that was that's engineering. A way to, yeah. That's a badass way to announce you're running, right? It's like I'll. You know, he will, I'll, I'll get back to you later, but until then, I'm I'm changing the uh, playing field to benefit me, and uh, I just thought it was, you know, it, I thought that was just a badass political hardball move. It was power and, uh, on the um, and uh, New Hampshire, by the way, has vowed to to battle that, uh, but they're going to find out, I believe, that the uh, Democratic Party uh, is a private organization. They will find that out. But the interesting thing is, New Hampshire. It is a fluke that the Republicans didn't win the New Hampshire Senate race. It's just because they had a candidate that was not, under any other circumstances, they would have won. New Hampshire's a funny state. It's We've thought of it as trending Democratic, but it's it's it, there's been a counter-reaction. I mean, you live right next door to it. You've seen some of the same trends in Maine, but it's it, it this could actually affect. New Hampshire is very temperamental about this sort of thing, so, you know. We'll see how it plays. Maine, Maine is like Vermont. New Hampshire had a baby, a great big, huge baby. Uh, I, I, I defy it. And you know, and it, is, it, ser- it serves us well. Politically, it serves Maine well. We have uh, an independent, one of the, and we have an independent who ran as an independent and was elected as an independent. He did not run as a Democrat and switch over like some other independent I know of in New England. Oh. Uh, the uh, but he ran as an independent. He was elected as an independent. But he caucuses with the Democrats, and you know why, which allows allows him and to join with uh, Senator Collins. And and yeah, I imagine they're not above good cop, bad cop. <laughs> so. So I think it. I think every state should probably. Do it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's that, it, that way you have someone in the room with with both with both the caucuses. I mean, people were critical of Kristen Simina, and I, I'm going to offer a comparison that Kristen, what Kristen Simina did, is very similar to what Jacob Javits of New York did in 1972, which is sort of separate himself herself from the party, but at the same time, you're still caucusing, you're still voting with the party. And you, you got you got the influence for your state in every possible permutation. I mean, she just she saved the Democratic budget by coming in Schumer by coming up with a compromise that lost eighty seven to ten, but it allowed the uh, moderates to vote 
to keep um, you know, Title 42 in place without it being part of the, the Republican proposal, which lost the, the Mike Lee's proposal, which lost 50 to 47 or something like that. So my point being that, you know, the independent, it was really in the 1970s you started to see the major independence of, of the 20th century kind of come about. And it never really lost it. In fact, a little guy moves to Burlington, Vermont around that time, if I'm not mistaken, name of Bernie Sanders, and decides to run yes, for mayor. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> it's the ultimate it's example. Uh, you know, it, uh, it, no matter the thing, the swing the swing vote is the deciding vote. It's like, yeah. uh, like coaches will try to tell you the last second shot did not win the game. Uh, it was an effort, the total effort, but we know the last second shot won the game. That's part of the fun of it. So it's yeah. like uh, the last second vote wins the game, at least as far as we're concerned. I think the thing to remember about next year is, is uh, what passes these days for an off year for elections. So uh, people who really want to get things done will will surrender themselves to the hellfire that will be 2024. And there's going to be a rush to see what you can get through. A lot of stuff came through on the um, Christmas creep. I mean, the uh, appropriations bill, and uh, that that had a lot to, uh, you know, that brought a lot through with it. Yes. And I think that, but by the end of Q1, and it's going to be administrative year. It's going to be a lot of presidential declarations uh executive orders that kind of thing and i that I, I just see it as a year of absolute turmoil that gets pushed into the administration of things including things like immigration i mean you know how how are you going to deal with immigration certainly comprehensive immigration is not going to come through it's going to be a it's going to be the issue of the year well and this uh, to me i mean we're not going to say, say comprehensive integration reform but the question i have is there's one reform that could theoretically pass if the parties decide to be a little bipartisan, and that's DACA reform in exchange for Title 42, um, that basically you know, the, the Dreamers get their their position certified and Title 42. I don't know if that's just become too polarized at this point, but that was the one. It looked like that well, was a possibility. On that is, uh, yeah. My pet theory is that unless you're one of the Republicans in the border states, Title 42 goes away. Really, uh, the Democrats are the, the are the the dog that caught the car, because, as I understand it, it'll be streaming through. And you know, the the thing I think people don't get about immigration is, asylum seekers are different. Asylum seekers come in and ask for asylum. They don't try to sneak in and sneak by everybody. They come in, walk up to to the authorities, and say, "I'm seeking asylum," and I we we have a hearing, but. The thing is that those hearings are backed up by the tens of thousands, and now it takes what five years yeah. for that hearing to take place. So I'll see you in five years. I well, gotta go. I got a cousin in Ohio, and that's you know? and that's the whole thing that you never basically get the hearing. And some of the asylum seekers were already hearing it with Title Forty Two, which is sneaking into the country. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little trivia piece. Do you know where most of the asylum uh, amnesty hearings occur for those that cross in, uh, from Texas? Oh, immigration court would be the chicken answer because yeah. <laughs> I have Immi- where the immi- where the prime immigration court is for that for that for for uh, that covers all of the Texas border. Is, I'm guessing since you know it's New Orleans. It's not. It's even it's even more obscure. It's Oakdale, Louisiana. 
Okay. Which you've That's, never heard of. It's 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 in uh, central Louis, central Louisiana, not, and it's uh. For and the other reason, thing I'll tell you, yeah. since, since all my friends who have heard me go on this rant have heard it before, and they were like, "Well, well, he's going to say it. I'm going to say it." Is, is let's remember that immigration judges are not are not actual federal judges. They are employees of the Department of Justice. They are administrative judges, and they work for the Department of Justice. So there, they're not actual judges. They can't hold the government in contempt. They're not part of the judicial branch. That we should call them something else. They, that said, they, they're ALJs. They're ALJs. You, yeah. you, 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 what's an ALJ? Administrative law judge. So they, they have, they have the rights of federal judges in that they serve for life, but they, they are not Senate confirmable. Is the kind of the, the point about it? They work. You for would the think of we could just hire a thousand of them and get anyway. Yeah. That, that's a different rant for a different day. But you know, I think that's what we see politically next year. When you look, when you draw the parallel back to 73, remember uh, uh, 73's actually when Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail 72 came out was in 73, of course, because that it took them a while to get the uh, the reporting from the from Rolling Stone together and, and, and produce the book. But 73 was also, you know, the, the, the revamp for, you know, who's going to speak for us. Um, the Democratic Party felt itself in shambles. I think that's a big difference because I think the Democratic Party came out of the midterms with significant mojo. Uh, you know, there was no red tide. There was, uh, uh, I think that there's a lot for them to look forward to. There is, there is the fact that uh, it's going to be, you know, a living hell. No, no, I, I in because fact, getting anything through is going to be difficult. The Republicans will now have control of the investigative branch of government, and they're going to and, use it. Oh, they're going to use it. Uh, you, you, you can bet everybody's got their list. And uh, well, I thought, was, and I, I think that yeah. um, I think Hunter would say, you know, the going is, is getting weird, and well, it'll be see, it'll be fun to see what weirdos turn pro. I will tell you that Hunter wrote a lot about where he thought George Wallace would go in '76. In 72, or he thinks, you know, four years later. And yet, pretty much Wallace is going to collapse before 76. He's not going to be the Democratic candidate. He's not going to be an American independent. There's not going to be a third-party candidate. And maybe that the lesson of, of, of Fear and Loathing in 72 is everyone thought Trump was sure to be the nominee. And now it's not very long thereafter that people are basically... He's saying, nope, no, nope, it's going to be somebody else. It may just be this other Southern governor. That's kind of thing. I find it, I find it fascinating beyond belief because I am someone who doesn't think any other Republican has a ghost of a chance against Trump in the Republican primary. I, I, I think, do not. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's down to the evangelicals, which was core of Wallace's support. And I think they're starting to turn away, but we'll see. I mean, that, here it comes through. That's no one knows what's going to happen. If you, I will point out that, if you had taken bets on every Washington reporter in 1972 who the Democratic nominee would be, I don't think Jimmy Carter would have even gotten on the list, much less Jimmy Carter bet. might have still been selling bobbles at that point. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a point well taken. And uh, we, we finished a year of Hunter stories, and now now we shift gears into what will pass for, for an off year. And I think that we will probably make uh, the first – Episode of next year, uh, sort of our, um, well, I was going to say our, our prediction episode, but yeah. uh, may, maybe we, we move on and maybe we'll have some uh, 
information about uh, Mr. Scalise by then. I think it would be kind of interesting to see where this is going. And uh, we're also going to be getting back to our more conventional hunter stories this year, ladies and gentlemen, our hunter-gatherer stories through the years of people who have wonderful hunter stories. That's going to be coming back in the podcast. And before we leave, I have to say there's one other thing hearkening back to 73, just right after the, the new year. Um, and that was the last time that Tulane University went to a major bowl game. They've been to bowl games since then, but they went to what's called the blue, was then called the Blue Bonnet Bowl. And uh, now they're going to the Cotton Bowl. So, and it's been, they had a couple of minor bowl appearances, but this is the first major bowl appearance they've had in 50 years. So. Kind of and and since we all know that 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 New Orleans is is completely linked to to the mechanics of the universe, we should always pay attention to that kind of thing. That's sure the thing. It's just a little personal thing because I'm going to be at the Cotton Bowl on the on the second. So <laughs> I'll put that. Out. Speaking of that, I will see you next year, Curtis Robinson. <laughs> well, it's been a good one, and and uh, despite. Uh, despite evidence to the contrary, uh, I think it's going to be a great year politically and otherwise. Uh, we 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 pray that uh, as long as uh, Russia keeps those uh, nukes in the holster, we'll be fine. And that does it, ladies and gentlemen, for this edition of Hunter Gathers, the Hunter S. Thompson stories in our year looking at fear and loathing on the campaign trail, 1972. And don't worry, we're going to keep kind of this uh, on an infrequent basis, looking as we go from 72 to 24 in the presidential election. But we're also going to be going back to some of the conventional Hunter stories in the next couple of years. Uh, on behalf of Curtis Robinson, yours truly, Christopher Tidmore, we'll see you next year.